Welcome to The Data Economy, a podcast about leaders like you who use data to drive business growth and accelerate digital innovation. I'm your host, Michael Krigsman. In this podcast, technology leaders offer practical advice and a firsthand look into modern data strategies and their digital initiatives. You can watch all the episodes on redis.com slash the data economy. Today, we're talking about real-time data at scale with Farah Ali, the VP of Technology Growth Strategy at Electronic Arts. Farah, how are you? It's great to see you today. You too, Michael. I'm doing good. Farah, tell us about Electronic Arts. It's you know it's a brand name. We we all know the name Electronic Arts, but give us a little bit of the insider view. Well, it's you know we say our mission at EA is to inspire the world to play. It's kind of like that as a company. We really focus on building the best games and digital content and services uh, to make the customer experience, the player experience, delightful. And we really think about gaming as, as a way to build connection, to build meaning, um, and keep curiosity alive, no matter your age, no matter your demographic. So it's, it's really about fun, entertaining, connective experiences. I love that. And I'm excited to talk about data and how data supports this mission that you just described. So Farah, what is your role? I know you're VP of Technology Growth Strategy, but what does that translate to? What do you act, what is your, what is, what are the activities and things that you do at Electronic Arts? So it's a very interesting role. It's a mix between a tech strategy, a corp strategy and a corp dev role. Um, and what I primarily do is I look at emerging and future technologies and how that relates to what our tech strategy should be. So think of it as creating the future fit for our technology strategy. As part of that, there are special projects, incubation projects that I'm working on. I look at technology M&A. Should we be investing in certain technologies? Should we be uh, buying certain tech? And it's really just about how do we make sure that we stay competitive and you know every new trend or idea or tech that you hear about, we have somebody who's evaluating the merits of it and evaluating it, but in context with you know what we do as a company, what our goals are. Um, and so the technology is in the end, but it's really about how can this be used to further delight our players and power the player experience. So you're looking at technology as the support or enabler for that great player experience and immersive experience that you were describing earlier. Exactly, exactly. And how do we make sure that, you know, we're we're competitive, right? We're not behind um, when we're thinking about things like blockchain technology, you know, where is it relevant? When we are AR came out first, you know, there's there's always been constant sort of experimentation in the space, but, you know, we don't go to scale until we really see the opportunity, the killer experience, the, the revenue growth the opportunity there. So it's all very much strategically in support of your customers. Exactly. It's very much in support of our customers, our players. Um, and if it doesn't make sense uh, for our player, if it doesn't enhance the player experience in some way, um, if it doesn't add to the, the game experience in some way, then you know, we're not looking at it purely from the technology aspect. 
I know that you are very data focused. You use lots of real time data. Can you describe how that data fits into this overall strategic picture that you just laid out for us? Yeah, I mean, you know, we get any, you know, petabytes of data coming in daily. Uh, from generated by our users. This is data that's coming from games that are being played, from um, services that are being run, from content that's being dropped, from campaigns that we're running. So it's all kinds of data. And, uh, you know, we look at it for a, a bunch of different use cases. And I would say particularly there are four different personas when you think about how our data is used. So there's the business leaders. They mostly don't need real-time data. They're really looking at what are some key customer metrics and they're looking at trends. They're making sure that things are trending the right way. Is the average spend per player, is that in the right place? Uh, are customers on average engaging a particular time or a session with a game? Um, what's the sentiment of the players, right? Um, and so sometimes daily fluctuation, there is just noise. It doesn't really point to a direction. And so that's really trend over time. But then there may be cases where it's a privacy or compliance issue, or there's a you know, a geosensitive issue. And so there's also real-time aspect to that data where executives can react in real time. Um, and so that's sort of data for business leaders, for executive decision-making and for strategy. Then there's the producers or the game developers, right? They're really focused on the player experience. The producer, the game designer is looking at data and saying, I, I put this game map in this way. I have a building here. I have these, you know, pieces of content that you can interact with are the players actually interacting with the game the way that I intended for it, right? And so it's a constant loop of, you know, play testing, getting that data, going back to the drawing board and iterating over that so that we are building the best game and we're building the experience the way that it's actually being used versus how we think it should be used. So, uh, so there's a lot of real-time telemetry, uh, but it's not uh, always just for live games. It's also for games that are currently under production. Um, then you have analysts and analysts are looking at, um, you know, how do you get insights from the data, right? So you have metrics, you have some quantitative data, you have some qualitative data. How do you piece that together to actually make sense of it and sort of either have experiments that you can prove or disprove or hypotheses that you can sort of test out or just sort of look at forecasting and trends. Um, and analysts are usually paired with, you know, business leaders or producers, game developers to actually help them mine this data. And then you have your engineers. You can have data scientists, you have data analysts, um, sorry, you have um, data engineers, and then you have just uh, regular software engineers who are actually building the system. So they're figuring out how do you build the right standardized telemetry? Where is this data going to be collected and stored? If it's real time, what's the scalability of our systems allowing the data to come in? And essentially making it such that the systems uh, allow for ease of access for everybody who needs access to that data. And then the workflows on top are self-serve. So, uh, you know, for example, the game developer spends most of their time focusing on the game and developing the game, and they don't have to worry about telemetry or building systems or capturing data. So that can be done at scale by these engineers. And that's primarily kind of the four ways we think about data. It sounds like data is woven very tightly into the fabric, into the DNA of the company. Yep, it, it is. And, you know, um, some of the, the personas that I talked about, you can think about the, the use cases, right? So, uh, for example, um, game producers, game developers, they really are thinking about personalization at scale, right? So when you are playing a game, 
you should feel like it's made just for you. The, the fun aspect of it is, you know, built in a way that, you know, the difficulty is not too much, but it's not too little, right? So the, there's a dynamic difficulty piece of it, which is different for different people. Um, if you are playing an online game that is with other players, if it's a multiplayer game, how do we match make you with the right skill set, you know, not too high, not too low? So there's tons of ways to think about how that data can be used. So we think about personalization at scale and data needed for that. We think about, we call it intelligent quality applications, right? And that can be anywhere from finding bugs in games to life site issues to fraud detection, cheat. Then there's things like procedural generation. So how do you use data to actually create epic worlds, create characters, create faces? So you're not manually creating the thing. You're actually you know, using data and learning from it and algorithmically creating uh, worlds and games and characters and games and so forth. And then there's um, things like believable characters in games. You have non-playing characters. You have in FIFA, you, you'll see, um, you know, stuff like the grass that the players are running on, you know, and it kind of moves in the wind the way that you'd expect real grass to. So there's, there's you know, tiny minute things that we uh, pay attention to, tiny details that make your experience more immersive and more real. Um, so yeah, those are kind of the different ways that we think about data. You you said something really intriguing, using data to create worlds. And there's been all this discussion of the metaverse with Facebook recently. Can you give us a glimpse of how you use data to create worlds? It's such an intriguing statement. I think uh, so it's slightly different from the metaverse idea where, um, you know, if, if you think about if you had to build a game today and let's say, you know, the game is, um, you know, you want to look at uh, some sci-fi book that you're really excited about. And you want to convert that into a game. Just think of the sheer number of characters. Think of the worlds that you'd have to actually draw uh, and then the scenes you'd have to create to animate. It's a lot of manual effort. Right. Um, and then the time to market that that you know, results in. And so it's part of it is an efficiency play, right? So we don't need to actually go and film and motion capture a hundred different people just to create the audience in, let's say, FIFA or Madden or one of these other, you know, sports games. But if we have um, enough data, we can actually go and create crowds, right? So they're not actual people, but they're algorithmically generated. So part of it is for efficiency. Part of it is for realism, right? Uh, and you see this in, in movies. Uh, you see this with kind of computer generated on the metaverse side, what we're thinking about it is in terms of immersiveness. So uh, we really think about how your interaction with the game transports you into feeling like you're in the game, right? Without sort of even thinking about AR or VR or those techniques. And one of the ways that you do it is to, you know, make the gameplay experience kind of very, very seamless. When you're in the character, you feel like you are the character, you are part of the narrative and the story. And that's really about the storytelling. That's really about the gameplay mechanics. That's really about the psychology of gaming. The metaphor itself is, is, a, is a fascinating topic. And I think there's so much conversation going on around it. I think to me, primarily, it's it's about identity at the at the very core of it, right? So, how do you have this online identity that's the same across every online property that you're on, right? So, if I have a particular identity, I want that same identity tied to YouTube or Twitter or my EA account or when I go to Facebook or when I go play um, an Epic game. And how does that happen? That interoperability between organizations. I think to me, those those are some of the challenges, the interoperability and the, the core identity, because how do you do that 
and still keep a decentralized environment, you know. And I, I think finally on the metaverse, the the final piece on data is that, you know, who's responsible for the data, right? So there's a lot of content that people will create. Who's who's responsible for governing that? Who's responsible for looking at, you know, when I talk about we look at data for personalization for, for gamers, it's because we have a mission, you know, and we have a duty towards our gamers, right? And in that metaverse, that's not really owned or controlled by anyone. It's the collective community that will decide what those experiences look like, whether something should be personalized or not. So I'm, I'm very curious how that will evolve and the governance will evolve around that and the moderation will evolve around that. A lot of very interesting and very open questions that I suspect are not going to be resolved for years. When you are uh, collecting data around the gameplay, are the games very instrumented? How are you getting that data? And what are you doing with that data as the player is moving through the game? So uh, we do have a standardized telemetry, and that's very important because uh, then a game team can actually decide the kind of metrics they want to look at, the kind of analysis they want to do. And, you know, for that, what kind of instrumentation they should enable. And so, you know, when you're instrumenting, let's say, um, you know, something as simple as this game is mode X and X means something, you can actually instrument that in the game in a very standard way, which means that when you're actually trans, uh, you know, actually digesting uh, or ingesting that data and transforming that data, it comes out how you'd expect it to. And that means you could have standardized dashboards, standardized reporting. So telemetry and instrumentation standardization is a very important tenet of, of how we um, handle and manage data. Um, the other piece, you know, how do you, so for example, when, when you're going through a game, let's say it's in production, it's live site. One of the most important things is uh, performance and reliability and uptime, right? If you're playing a game, uh, you're actually about to win and then, you know, Boom! You know you get you get disconnected. And you don't go back on for another minute. The game's over. You kind of you lost that history. That data was gone. Any coins you'd won in that um, match, for example, might be gone. So how do you make sure that that doesn't happen? You cannot you know get away with no downtime all the time. But then how do you have reliability so you have a consistent experience? So we really think about looking at uh, anomaly detection. We have instrumentation around that. One example is we look at the peak simultaneous users at any given time, and we will uh, draw curves to look at here's kind of the actual PSU and here's kind of the predicted. And then we'll measure the variance between the actual and predicted. And if the variance is greater than what we'd expect it to be, then we'd actually go and you know, um, flag that as an anomaly. And then that anomaly, usually we have more data that will point to, oh, this is an outage in the data center, or this is a fiber cut in a channel, or this ISP is interacting this way, or we actually have a crash on the server side, right? And then some of these are actually auto-remediated. So for example, uh, maybe there was a bug in the game and after, you know, the game server ran for X hours and, you know, the memory, it, it just kind of kept adding up and it ran out of memory. And so that particular anomaly when it's detected might just go and reboot that machine. Um, but then it might also open up a ticket in the incident management flow that might say, you know, this out of memory exception was found in this particular code. And, you know, this needs to be remediated and, and put into our next patch. So there's a number of sort of automatic ways to handle it. There's also manual ways to handle it. Uh, another example would be, um, you know, when we're matchmaking. And so if somebody has been online and trying to match to another player and they haven't been matched and it's been more than a certain number of minutes, 
or even seconds, then something, you know, would kick in and we'd have, you know, here you play against the machine, right? Here's kind of a NPC character you can play with because maybe there are just not that, that many people online or maybe we're unable to connect to that geo. So that's kind of another way. Um, and a final sort of example would be around, let's say, security or fraud. So, you know, we'd have ways to detect if somebody in the game is a bad actor. Um, so an example could be, we know all the Xbox devices that the players are on, right? And we could just know that which devices have one band account or more than one band account or no band accounts and how are they connected to each other. And then we assign risk scores to players based on that. And then depending on the type of intrusion we're detecting, it could lead to you know some sort of blacklisting temporarily. It could lead to temporary suspension. It could lead to some other sort of you know mechanism where there's some communication with the player, or if it's really egregious, then you know outright banning of the player, which happens rarely and and can be sort of contested. So it's really all of these things that can happen, right? When you have a real time live game happening with lots of people on it, um, you have a duty to sort of make sure that that experience is safe, that experience is secure, and it's fair. Everybody in that ecosystem has a fair shot at winning or losing. Um, and so we, we look at a lot of that when we're actually thinking about lifesight and data. As you said earlier, it sounds like you're working with a tremendous volume of real-time data, non-real-time data, quantitative data, qualitative data, all mixed together and flowing simultaneously. Correct. Yeah. I mean, you know, petabytes of data generated every day. So, you know, we have uh, something like 500 million players worldwide and more than 300 games. So you can just imagine the type of data that we get. And, you know, E has been around since 82. So we also have a lot of historical data and we use that data to uh, when we look at newer versions of our game. And, you know, I would say some of the real time use cases, like I said, are around security, compliance, life site, uptime, performance, reliability, it's also for things like, you know, are we right-sized? Do we have too many servers up and, and too few players on? So do we need to actually scale back and make sure that we're cost-effective? And then the second piece of it, which is the non-real-time, that's where you pr probably don't need um, the level of granularity that you would need with some of these lifesite reporting metrics. So if you want to look at forecasting or budget or, you know, sentiment over time or average session length over time in a game, um, or average spend per player, like I said, over time on a game. You want to look at that in historical data. You want to be able to slice and dice it multiple ways. So what's important with the non-real-time data is um, the categorization of that data. Can I see, you know, what were the top customer support issues in a particular area? Can I do it by franchise? Can I do it by channel ID? Can I do it by customer service rep? Can I do it by number of incidents opened and closed? And, you know, so what do you do with that data down the line is part of how that data is um, uh, collected. And um, I think the, um, the final piece is, you know, when you have that mix of real time and non-real time, when uh, I would kind of mention that business case of, you know, leaders needing to look at trends, but then also really needing to know if something really egregious is happening right now and how do you react to it? Sometimes you have issues where you need to actually go and, you know, as, a, as an executive, make a statement about the state of the world, right? Um, you see all kinds of incidents happening around that. And so it's also about our um, employees. It's about our environment. It's about, you know, the, the world we live in, right? So we're not just here to build games and profit from that, but we're also existing within an ecosystem. Um, and how do we actually interact with that ecosystem is, is a big part of it too. 
Farah, you're collecting so much data of so many different types. For many businesses, when they collect that data, it's very hard to figure out where to focus. So how do you prioritize what data you look at and what you let go and so forth? No, that's a great question. And, you know, I'm, I, I don't think we have it perfect either. Um, and I think the mistake that a lot of uh, people and a lot of companies make is uh, sort of not asking themselves, what are the questions you want to get answered? What are the experiments that you want to run? And what, how do you want to evaluate them? And so uh, if I want to see trend over time, it doesn't matter that I have to collect the data every five minutes or every 15 minutes, you know. The hourly granularity could be fine. The, the two hourly or the daily granularity could be fine. So, um, you know, not asking yourself those questions also then means that you're, you're over-engineering or you're ending up building stacks that end up costing a lot of money. And I think the second piece is sometimes this stuff doesn't scale well horizontally. And so you're creating bespoke systems and you're sort of tied to on-prem uh, hosting solutions. So I think it's really about asking the right questions and really going back to the personas, right? You've got your business leader or executive persona, you've got your engineer persona, you've got your producer, game designer persona in our case, and some other case it would be, you know, the medical, uh, you know, the medical expert persona and what kind of data they would need, for example. Uh, and then you have the analyst, right? And um, not all of these people need real-time data. Some of these people are not technical and they don't need to understand how the data is organized or the data structures behind it. They just need to uh, have a self-service way to access it, access it uh, immediately, right? And be able to process it. So it's really about building those workflows on top of your storage pipeline and your query processing pipeline that allow everybody to plug and play, right? You might have a hub and spoke model in that case where you have analysts who can maybe even create their own ML models or you know their plug and play components that fit in so they can do the processing that they need. Uh, but it's really about asking the right questions up front, understanding what percentage of data needs to be real-time versus not, and then factoring that in when you're actually designing your system. Um, and then making it extensible, right? So building a plug and play or modular component so you can actually extend it over time for new use cases that you cannot foresee right now. You have a lot of clarity around the roles and with each one of those roles, the type of data and the type of analysis that needs to be done. I have to imagine that part of that clarity comes from your longevity as an organization. As you said, you've been around for decades as a company. Yes, a part of it is that, I mean, my own personal kind of clarity comes because I've been an operator for a very long time. So I started as an individual contributor, as an engineer, um, and I was, uh, you know, people manager. I ran uh, big engineering teams. Um, so I, I dealt with these pain points firsthand. I dealt with not having well understood telemetry systems or instrumentation systems. So having to build these bespoke systems and then having to build a translation layer every single time, right? Um, not being able to get real-time data when you needed it, not being able to go debug and troubleshoot uh, on the live site when something happens. So part of that is because I've actually learned from past experience, past mistakes and failures. And then the second piece is, yes, when you actually have historical data, when you've seen you know, how franchises did well or didn't do well, and then when you have so much sentiment data, the great thing about gamers is that there's such a vocal bunch. You will not have a problem getting feedback from this customer segment. And so, you know, you're they're there on Twitter, they're there on Reddit, they're, you know, calling us, they're on chat, they're on email. 
and we mine all of this information, right? So we can actually go and look at sentiment and then we create topics around those sentiments. So we have a good sense of like, here's the top areas where we see issues and here's where we can actually remediate them. And here's where this data is actually stuff we hadn't thought about. And, you know, does this go back into our game production? And do we use this to actually build our next uh, live content drop, right? Are people asking for more, you know, weapons of a certain kind or more, you know, masks or skins of a certain kind and should we go and do that for example over time we've learned that people like to see themselves in the game especially sims which is a you know a simulation and so we we had a lot of feedback around you know what about halloween in there what about eid what about all of these things that we celebrate and so we've taken those that feedback into account over time and we actually have a very um cool division it's called the positive play i believe uh, and that looks only and you know how do we make our games more inclusive for players? So they're looking at data in an entirely different way um, because they're looking at it from a what's our cor- corporate social responsibility to our players and how do we make sure that every player feels like they're they're in the game with us? So yeah, so I think it's over time being you know being in the shoes of the engineers and the analysts, but then also being in the shoes of the players and really thinking like a player. I think that's what helps us get that clarity. So you're bringing both of these sides together. Again, I, I keep using this term clarity, the behind the scenes together with the player perspective, and they layer on top of each other. So you're dealing with so much data and it's coming at you so rapidly. What kind of infrastructure do you have to manage this explosive amount of data? Yeah, and I think the the other piece of that puzzle is you don't always know what you need it for, right? Like we don't know what the metaverse will require, right? Or what other future use cases will require. And so uh, at any sort of infrastructure level, you have to think about storage. And then you have to think about, is it, do you you need access to that storage immediately or is it kind of cold storage? And so how do you decide sort of immediate need versus longer term sort of archival? Um, And so we have sort of the storage piece then you have the ingestion layer. So how do you actually ingest all of the data coming from your games, but then coming from social channels, right? So Twitter and Metacritic and so forth, from your financial systems, from your accounting systems, from many other sources. So a, a place where you can actually ingest and aggregate that data. Uh, and then on top of that, you need a way to access that data, right? So you need to build APIs that are self-service. You need to build tools that are self-service. You need to build workflows that anybody can go and create the workflow that they would need to extract. Um, you know, and there could be ETL workflows, for example, that data analysts use. Um, there are experimentation pipelines that an analyst might use. So you might actually build on top of your workflows, a whole AI and experimentation pipeline. That's actually what we have. It's your, you know, train, test, predict, slash, evaluate pipeline um, of that data. So you can actually go and build models for uh, anomaly detection, models for fraud detection, you know, all of those different types of, of cases. Um, and so you have kind of your infrastructure, you have your stack, and then you have your teams that need to do something with it. And they are building their particular piece of the application. And think of it as more as a plugin provider model where they write their own plugins perhaps for their piece of the thing or the app or their service. Um, but we provide, the, the core data team provides the infrastructure for storage, for ingestion, for access, and the, the key workflows in the, the core AI and experimentation platform. This infrastructure that you're describing, how much of it is cloud-based and how much of it is on-premises? And how do you decide whether to 
put pieces of your infrastructure in the cloud or on-premise? Yeah, a great question. So we actually took a deliberate strategy to move to the cloud um, several years now. And I would say most of our workloads are on the cloud. I think the other reason for that is because the, the gaming use cases became so important that cloud providers out there have also started, you know, also started building the right SKUs. So initially, we needed GPUs, and that just wasn't something that we could get from the, some of these providers. Now it's pretty common. So most of our, our workloads are cloud-based, and um, it gives us the advantage of scale, right? It gives us the uh, advantage of regional coverage, geo-distribution, um, and then it's ease of access for all of the, the data pipelines for our, um, our developers and our analysts. When I think about on-prem, historically, uh, we've used it when it's um, data that's BII or for some security reason or some compliance reason. And, uh, you know, or if there's a very customized game server, uh, a very bespoke sort of, you know, game service that only we, we can run in, in on-prem. Um, so that's kind of like, I would say, an exception. And, and our goal there, too, is once we see an offering that's commoditized, that's in the cloud, we want to move it there. And the, the primary reason for that is scale and efficiency, right? It really helps us plan better. So one thing that we do in our games is, you know, while we're doing production and while the game is being developed the, on the infrastructure side, we're constantly testing the game server density. So we're seeing how many players uh, per game server and how do we right size it? And so we can actually go and say, okay, we can save X million by right sizing to this particular density. And then we do a lot of performance and scale tests. So if we look at past data and we say, okay, for this same type of franchise launch last year, this was the peak users on day one and day two and day three. And we go look back as many years as we need to. And then we sort of use that and we look at pre-sales to predict what the peak usage would be going forward. We actually go and test it, you know, 2x, 3x, 5x, and then we try to start at a reasonable scale, but we're provisioned so we can just spin up servers in the back end. Um, and you couldn't do that with on-prem. It's, it's very, very difficult. You have to buy the machines, you've already paid for it, and what if, you know, you don't get the usage you thought, and so you end up wasting a lot of money. And that's kind of how we think about, you know, and, and we're not tied to any particular provider, so we really try to have a hybrid strategy so we can leverage the benefits of the services across all providers. Does latency and speed of being able to access, transmit, and communicate that data ever play a role in your cloud versus on-premise decision-making? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, um, the great thing about these cloud providers is that, you know, in the last 10 years or so, uh, you know, there are very few regions where they don't exist. I think initially that was one of the challenges where, you know, if we didn't have, we have a lot of players in the Middle East, but we didn't have any sort of data centers close by. And so we had to go, we had some, you know, really high value players there, for example, for our sports games. And we want to make sure that they get the right bandwidth. Uh, but now we actually can move those workloads to, to the cloud. So for the most part, it's not a problem. Um, for some regions, it can still be a problem, but then it's also because they're local ISPs and their own you know, bandwidth constraint in those particular geos. Um, and, and in that case, we sometimes have to do something specialized. But uh, for the most part, you know, I, I think the you know, cloud has solved that problem for us. And having the regional data centers has really solved that problem for us. And what we have done is we build our games so that they are modular and componentized and you can actually go and deploy in any particular container, right? So once you containerize a game, it's very easy to actually go and deploy anywhere. Uh, and that's a shift we made. Uh, otherwise, before it was 
really sort of being packaged in a way that it would just run on this kind of bespoke on-prem machine. So yeah, I, I think we'll still have some performance issues. We have rubber banding issues. Uh, sometimes it's because there's just a lot of online traffic. Like I think last year, we definitely were um, put to the test there. You know, everybody was online and not everybody was playing games. And so that has put us in a in a better position to actually be able to anticipate and, and do something with the, with the additional workloads. It sounds like as the cloud providers have gotten better and continue to improve, it makes life easier for you, gives you a great deal of flexibility that in the past you just didn't have. Absolutely, because, you know, we need to be always on. We need to, you know, with the subscription model and the life services model, we have to be always on. And um, that raw compute, that access to even more raw compute than than was possible before, and the fact that we could just horizontally scale, uh, scale out as we need, has really helped us with that time to market with that scale. And I, and I think what has really worked well for us is uh, a lot of these uh, cloud providers are, are great partners and we can actually, you know, when, when we see a use case that doesn't exist, we can actually go to them and explain to them. And um, and then that helps the community because there are others who could benefit from that particular skew. And so I think if that didn't happen, if, if it was sort of, a, if you can only use one provider and there was some sort of you know, competition like that in the market would be very hard. So the fact that, you know, providers have to each provide better service than the other for us to use them makes it better for us as a company because we're always getting better service. We're always getting uh, access to great customer service and, and access to architects who want to go and build the things that we would use. Farah, you've mentioned several times the importance of stability and performance. How do you balance the cost against the level of elasticity, availability, stability, and performance. Because look, if you spend enough money, you can have basically 100% uptime, but you may not have a business anymore because you can't afford to maintain it. So how do you draw that balance? Yeah. I mean, I guess the example I gave about game server density kind of taps into that a little bit, right? So because we are forecasting what we think the traffic is going to look like because we are testing that, because we are testing twice and 3x that, we have a better idea of right-sizing, right? And then we are building our infrastructure such that we can horizontally scale. So when we start out, let's say it's, you know, um, you're in uh, early access, beta launch, I'm out there. Uh, I thought I'd get, you know, 5 million users. I actually got 20. Okay, you know, it doesn't freak me out. I just go spin up more servers you realize that, oh, the reason we got 20 and not five is because we, you know, marketing also had this campaign where every, you know, Coke bottle would have, would give somebody a, a kind of a free pass to to sign up. And so we actually expect that traffic to drop down back to one in two or three days because that's when the promo ends. And so being able to monitor that and then being able to, you know, spin back and being able to scale back helps us kind of maintain that, right? And the, and the way that the paper use model allows us to be charged for what we're, we're actually using, that really helps us. And so even if we're off by, like that's a big magnitude, you know, from one to 20, we can still course correct if we are monitoring. So the key there is to monitor. The key there is to know when you monitor, when you have a you know data point, actually know what it means, right? And so um, sometimes a marketing will run a campaign and there really won't be a close uh, communication. You know, maybe the game team doesn't know that there's this campaign going on. So, you know, there's time wasted trying to figure that out. Um, so those are the kind of things that actually are more important that you actually, when you're launching, you know everything that's going around that launch, then you can plan for it accordingly. 
But the ability to test, like even spin up cloud uh, services in a test environment, in a pre-production environment, actually lets us test at scale, test us more accurately with the configuration that production would have. Um, so yeah, you know, not over-provisioning is, is, is a key to actually not spending more than you have to. And of course, you have this large body of highly accurate historical data, which then enables you to operate this aspect of the business, namely this prediction and planning aspect. Uh, exactly. Just uh, having the historical data, but then also, you know, having had multiple launches where we've used it, where we've been wrong and we've tweaked and we've course corrected. So, you know, we can actually feel fairly confident about our predictions. I think it's when we have a completely new IP or we're targeting a completely new demographic or we're trying something completely new. That's when it's hard, but then I suspect that's hard for everyone. You know, it's not unique, but then there are ways to do uh, testing offline. There are ways to collect data offline where we have done that with early play tests and with, um, you know, using uh, kind of these uh, player cohorts that, that we actually talk to for feedback. What does innovation look like when it comes to real-time data? Where is the future of using real-time data? I mean, I still think uh, AI and ML is is where we can extract the most value when it comes to data. You know, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of conversation around NFT and blockchain and metaverse and all that uh, within the gaming community. But I still think that if you look at kind of raw a potential of a technology where we can extract the most value for gaming. I think it's in, it's with artificial intelligence and ML. There's so I mean I I was talking about sort of procedural generation, right? Think about the value we can extract there, but then think about you know uh, being able to really completely understand every single player in your ecosystem, and then being able to build machine learning models that can learn and deep learning models that can that can learn you know through osmosis through this data that we have about this player, all kinds of things about them. And then, then think about the value creation that creates, right? So we have all of this. Now, what? how can we add more value? We already have them as a player. And then the second piece of it where I think is, is where a lot of innovation can happen is understanding, uh, you know, Gen Z, right? These 19 to, I guess, 20, 30-year-olds 30, uh, 30 who are going to be playing the games what are they looking for? What are they interested in? How? What is their behavior online? You know, they might be interacting with some of our games, but not others. Why not? You know, and when they interact with different games, if they if they play Sims, uh, but they don't play FIFA, but they are interested in um, Madden for some particular time period, why is that? So, can we actually look at the data to do the storytelling, and then use that storytelling to actually help us, you know, gain those actionable insights that help us with business decisions, right? I think that's where it is. And I think uh, when I think of business leaders and executives, they're great at making connections, right? They're not great at what machines are good at, which is, you know, looking at lots and lots of data and making sense of it. But once you can make some sense of it and you can present it with context to the right people, then they can have great ideas that come from that. And so it helps them make better executive decisions. It helps them with their storytelling and it helps them understand their players and their customers better, which is the key here. You know, what are customers doing right now? What are Gen Z or new demographics doing? And then if you want to enter these new business segments, if you want to enter these new markets, if you want to create this new IP that, that didn't exist before, how do we uh, understand who is looking for it? What do they want out of it? Uh, what um, value can we extract from it for them? 
Um, and I think that's still where where data and, and AI and ML has, has a big part to play. What I find fascinating is many companies struggle to collect the data, to figure out the kinds of data and to gather that data. In your case, you have such a large body of very high quality data. So the challenge then becomes the creativity, the innovation of what can we do with that data? Now we've got it. What do we do with it? Yes, exactly. And and I think to your point also, how do we make sure it's not noise, right? Sometimes, you know, you get, you know, very well-meaning leaders who are like, yes, we must collect everything. But in reality, you know, people, if you look at dashboards in companies, they're the most underused uh, utility there. You know, people don't like looking at graphs. They don't look like looking at dashboards. They want to understand uh, data in context of what they're doing. And so I think the key there is how do we build the thing on top of the data that actually provides those interesting actionable insights, right? And then the, the action on top of it, depending on your role and your function, that's what you take with it. Uh, but yeah, I think reducing the noise and reducing this this idea that you have to collect everything, you know, you can collect everything, but you're probably never going to use it. And so, you know, be smart about the data you're collecting, be smart about your uh, you know, data strategy and be smart about how, what you plan to use it for. You know, that's when you can sort of really have clarity around um, around how to actually use it for the best kind of future fit technology strategy. Okay. Farah Ali, thank you so much for sharing your experience and expertise with us. It's been a, a fascinating conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. As a reminder, you can watch all podcast episodes on redis.com slash the data economy. Check out redis.com slash business for related executive content.